Good morning, my sweetheart church. It is good to see you. I always miss you when I'm not here. Before I start with my message, I just want to uh, go back to a moment uh, that Spencer was uh, praying about. Really, it's a, a pretty remarkable story about our young Ellis White, our pastoral intern whom the session just extended an invitation to, uh, to become an assistant pastor next year when he's finished with his uh, seminary training. So uh, that's really exciting for all of us. Um, but just imagine this, a 27-year-old young man, his father dies at 59 of an unexpected heart attack. He goes back, he preaches the message for his father's funeral. In the message, 12 people give their life to Christ. And, uh, and then this week, uh, in the midst of mourning, he leads a team of six people down to Arizona State, and they're going to be working with RZIM, Ravi Zacharias Ministries, to proclaim the gospel. I suspect that Arizona State could use a little bit more of Jesus. That's just a guess. And, uh, and you know, that, that is a pretty astounding thing. So I'm grateful for him and for Rachel, for the family. I know you are too, but this is a week especially. Let's lift our young, our young star, our young brother to, uh, to the Lord, okay? Last week, uh, 50 of us returned from a journey to Turkey. Uh, in, Turkey's never mentioned in the, in the Bible by that name, but we know it very well by another name, Asia Minor, right? Asia Minor. And it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of Asia Minor in the formation of our Christian faith. Uh, it, Paul made three missionary journeys into the area that we now call Turkey. He wrote several of his letters to churches in Asia Minor. Most, most of the book of Acts takes place in Asia Minor. The, all seven of the churches of the Revelation are located in Asia Minor. It was such an important spot that in the early centuries of the Christian faith, it was known as the cradle of Christianity. The cradle of Christianity. And so for pilgrims to make a journey there, it's, uh, it's significant. We get to stand in the places like Ephesus where we, uh, we've, been, we've read about them since Sunday school. We've heard stories about these places. Be in the theater where, where they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and, and all of that. So it's great. It's also sad because if it was indeed the cradle of Christianity, the cradle has been robbed or almost robbed. Um, of the 75 million people that live in Turkey, there are only a few thousand that profess the name of Christ. It, the, the witness for Christ has all but disappeared in that place. And so you go there with mixed emotions. There's a great sense of, of delight and, ex, and excitement. There's also a sense of heaviness that this place that once had a vibrant ministry, a vibrant presence of Christianity... House has been replaced now with a vibrant expression of Islam. And you are reminded about it everywhere you go, five times a day. You hear echoing through the, from the minarets of 83,000 mosques dotted around the country, the call to prayer. You watch as you walk by the many mosques and see men that are washing their feet and their faces and their hands in preparation to go in to pray. You see them as they kneel down on prayer rugs and facing Mecca in, in their daily prayer time. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Muslims, practicing Muslims, have five things. They're called the five pillars that, that they do. Uh, the faith, they, they must believe in Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. Um, prayer, they must pray five times a day. 
charity, they must give alms to the poor as they are able. Um, fasting at Ramadan, in the season of Ramadan, and, and pilgrimage. They must make a, a hajj, a, a pilgrimage once in their lifetime to Mecca. <clears throat> and, I, and it's important to know, these are not like add-on options that they can pick or choose from. You, you are defined as a Muslim by doing these things. Islam is a performance-based faith. You please Allah by doing these things, and if you don't, you don't please Allah. Uh, one of the things you discover pretty quickly uh, as you are in this land and, and studying this faith is there's no such thing as grace in Islam. There, there is no such thing as, as grace. And my Turkish friend, by the way, Atakan, confirmed exactly what I was teaching when I was talking to, the, to my, uh, my tourists, my pilgrims about that. He's, there is no such thing as grace in the doctrine. Allah is a demanding God. He is not a loving God. He is not a gracious God. He is a demanding God. And, uh, and the very name Islam means submission. So your life as a Muslim simply is to submit to God, to obey Allah. And you do your best to do that. And in the end, maybe, maybe he will see fit to allow you to come into paradise. But there are no guarantees. I go into some detail on this because, beloved, it stands in stark contrast to the God of the Bible as revealed to us in, in Holy Scripture. The, the most famous verse in all of the New Testament is likely John 3.16. You could repeat it with me, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Those two verbs uh, really define the stark contrast between Allah and the God, the Father of Jesus. For God so loved God loved this, his world. God loved his children, his creation. And because he loved, he gave. And what did he give? He gave his son. He gave the very best he had to give. He gave the best in order to redeem this broken creation of his, his, his broken and stumbling children. Our faith could not be more contrary to Islam in, in spite of what some might say. They say we're all kind of worshiping the same God. Our faith could not be more contrary to Islam. Because as we have seen over the last few months in our journey through the story, the people of God were anything but submissive. Right? The people of God were anything but obedient. In fact, they were persistently, arrogantly, embarrassingly disobedient to God. In spite of that, the God, the gracious, generous, loving God, chooses to give, to give his son, to chase us down, to redeem us back to himself out of his grace, out of his mercy, out of his passion for us. The story of Jesus is the story of God's generosity. I mean, God is the most generous being in all of eternity. Do you see that? So when we talk about this day, Palm Sunday, and when we talk about Easter, when we, when we celebrate Monday, Thursday, and the sacrifice of Christ represented by the communion, when we are doing all of these things, we are celebrating a generous God who gave the very best he gave to his children, us, because he loves us. And he loves those Muslims, by the way, too. So if we are disciples of Jesus, here's the question we have been we have been tussling with in these last few weeks. If we are disciples of Jesus, if we have been saved by Jesus and filled by the Spirit of Jesus, 
then surely one of the indicators of our discipleship ought to be generosity, shouldn't it? I mean, there are, is it the only thing? Of course not. One thinks of the, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things also should be in evidence when the Spirit of Jesus lives within us, truly. But so should generosity. And I think that generosity is a particularly tough nut to crack Jesus must have thought so too. Getting people to release their money freely, to give up their their hard-earned wealth freely, is a tough nut to crack. It must have been because Jesus taught more. I've told you this. He taught more about generosity, about giving, about money, than, than he talked about love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or any of the other fruit of the Spirit. That is a pretty astounding thing when you think about it. Of all the things he talked about, that was the thing he thought he needed to hone in on. It gives me great comfort to imagine that one day after his most recent sermon on stewardship, Peter goes to James and said, all he ever does is talk about money. I I kind of find encouragement to think that Jesus probably had that said about him in his preaching ministry. Of course Jesus talked about other things, but he must have known something about how hard it is for us to struggle to be more generous. So during this season of Lent, when we talk about the generosity of the God who loved and gave, I felt led to talk increasingly about this important question in our own lives, and it's simply this. Am I, then, a generous disciple of Jesus? Am I a generous disciple of Jesus? Is there any indication, would those who watch me and the way I live have any indication that I am a disciple of Jesus by the way I give? And so we've looked at various aspects of of generosity. I, I preached, it seems a while back now, but... I preached on Nehemiah, remember the building of the wall. And I I told you there are 50,000 Jews that were in the city of Jerusalem at that time. But do you remember how many actually set about the work of building the wall? Do you remember out of that 50,000? 41 clans. 50,000 people, but most of them standing back and letting 41 clans do the work, carry the freight, pick up the tab. And one of the things that I suggest we think about is this. What part am I playing in the building of God's kingdom here? Am I playing any part or am I letting others do the heavy lifting and just kind of going along for the ride? One of the things that we discovered in that journey was that generous disciples give to the work of God's kingdom. They want to. They are eager to. They can't imagine not doing that, not playing a part. Then Pastor Larry preached a great sermon, and he asked this question. Do we give Jesus our best? Do we give God our best, our first, or our leftovers? Remember that? I was thinking about that uh, as I listened to that good sermon online, and I thought, it's something like this. This is the image I had. What if I invited Jerry to come over and and, uh, have a meal with me, and I I said, why don't you sit down? Let's just have a lunch and uh, and enjoy a a sandwich. Would you like to? Just a second, though. Bon appetit. (laughs) Great illustration, tough timing. 
we laugh about it. How, how, how honored would a guest feel? <laughs> how honored would Jerry feel if he sat down to a meal with my big bite mouth mark right in the middle of a sandwich? And yet the fact is that there are many of us who give to God the same way. We consume the most, the best, and then whatever crumbs are left over, if we have anything left over, we're kind of willing to toss it his way. Generous disciples give the first and the best, not the leftovers. And then last week, Elder Steve Maxwell, aren't you grateful that we have the elders, the quality of the people that you see up here before you, and, and last Sunday bringing God's word? Steve asked this question, do you give out of gratitude? We say that we believe that everything we have is a gift from God. We nod our heads in a sense, yes, everything, but often we act as if our prosperity is dependent upon our labors, our efforts, our work. I will never forget a conversation that I, that I had with a woman in this church down on the other end way back in the day. She's now gone to be with the Lord, I assume. And, um, and she, um, she said this to me. She said, um, you know, you talk all the time about how everything we have is a gift from God. I don't believe that. My husband and I worked hard for every dime we made. God had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I felt like moving you know, away, just, you know, just in case. And we, we kind of gasp when we hear it spoken so baldly. And yet I think that there are many of us who, deep inside, we don't really believe that what we have is the gift of the Lord, but we have it because we're smart. We work hard. We are more diligent than the average person. And when you read Scripture, you realize that everything that we have, everything we have, why were we born here and not Ethiopia? Everything we have in prosperity and in life is a, is a gift of the Lord. And so generous disciples give out of a deep sense of gratitude. So you remember those sermons and you remember those topics, unless you were skipping church because we were talking about generosity. I don't know. But that if we, and I wonder as you listen to those things, how you processed that and how you prayed through that. Because I'll bet it spoke to some of your hearts. This morning, we're going to turn to our familiar Palm Sunday story. And I saw... Uh, some principles of generosity in this story that I've never seen before. So let's see how good a detective you are. As I read this text, would you see if you spot it too? See if you see the generosity in this story. Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> Page 833 in your pew Bibles. Those are the paper things that are in front of you that they turn pages in case. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut tree branches and spread them on the road. The crowd then went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. We find something unique in this story about Jesus that we've never seen anywhere else in the account of his ministry. Think about this. For all of his three-year ministry, Jesus did spectacular things, didn't he? He healed people. He cast evil spirits out of people. He even raised people from the dead. Uh, It was uh, pretty impressive stuff that Jesus was doing. And without fail, he always had the same comment to those that he had just served in this way. What was the comment? Shh, right? Would you just do that with me? Shh. That's what Jesus said. He said, don't tell anyone what I've just done for you. By the way, those were wasted words. It's like angels saying, don't be afraid. Uh, when Jesus said, uh, don't tell anyone that I, what I just did for you, the guy's dead. He's now alive. I think he's going to tell. The word's going to get out. What do, what do you think? But he said, don't tell anyone. And why was that? Because every time Jesus did something miraculous like that, it threw another log on the Messiah fire. Every time he healed or cast out demons or raised someone to life, uh, it was a chance for those who were watching to, to whisper among themselves, I think this is the guy. This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. Why don't those high priests in Jerusalem get with it? Clearly, this is their man. Why why didn't Jesus want them to spread the word? Because he knew it was going to disrupt his ministry. He knew that it was going to cause trouble. He didn't need them fanning the flames of the Messiah fire. What he needed to do was finish the job of training his disciples. Then he would be ready to do it. So through his whole ministry, it was, shh, don't tell then comes Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and, and the gloves are off. Je- when Jesus climbs up on that donkey, he's fulfilling a prophecy of Zechariah. If you turn to Zechariah, the, near the end of Zechariah, you'll find that he's pre- predicted, and we see a part of that prediction here. He said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So when Jesus climbs up on that donkey, he knew exactly what he was doing. He said, okay, now's the time. Now you can talk. Now you can shout. Now you can proclaim it. I am the king. You're right. I am the Messiah. I am your savior. And I've come to save my people. Go ahead. Have at it. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he was signing his death warrant. He knew he was marching right into the hands and playing right into the plans of his enemies. When Jesus climbed up on that donkey, he knew exactly what he was doing. So did the people. They knew their prophecies. They knew their Saturday school lessons. They had been there. They knew what Zechariah said. And so when they see Jesus coming in, they respond in a very powerful way. What did they do? They laid their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey. Now we kind of, we treat that kind of, eh, of course, but really think about that for a moment. Who does that? Unless you're Sir Walter Raleigh and that's Queen Elizabeth, who does that? Who lays their cloak down on dirt so that a donkey can ride over the top of it? Isn't it a rather odd thing to do? What you need to remember is that for most peasants, the outer garment 
was one of their most precious possessions. They had little. They had nothing. So if you owned a cloak, an outer garment, normally without a seam, it was one of your most precious possessions. It was so important to you. It would explain, remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? How they cast lots for his outer garment, his robe, because they didn't want to waste it. They didn't want to destroy its value by tearing it up into pieces. And so when those people took off their outer garments, their precious possessions, and laid them down in front of Jesus, what were they were doing? They were honoring him. They were worshiping him. It was their way. When they recognized who Jesus really was, when they finally... When he finally owned up to it and stopped flying under the radar, when they recognized who Jesus was, they, they honored him by laying the very best that they had before his feet. Maybe you've never thought of Palm Sunday in terms of, of generosity and of, of giving, but isn't that a generosity story? When we see Jesus for who he really is, Not just a Sunday school story, not just the religious figure that we've known about all these years, but when we suddenly see the generous Jesus for who he is, willing to leave heaven, come to earth, die on my behalf, save my life, how can we not want to do the same thing but lay our very best before him? Something else struck me as I was reading this. I've never thought about this before, and I could just be making this up, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it's, it, this is what I asked myself the question what did they do with the robes after the donkey walked by on them what did they do with the robes after the donkey <laughs> over the top of them I assume they went and picked them up again don't you I don't think the disciples were following behind collecting them and then auctioning them off on eBay as a Palm Sunday memorabilia piece <laughs> I think they went out and they got the robes back. But when they got them back, they were marked. I had someone take a robe and put it out in a barnyard and get marked up. This is hoof prints. And, and I was just thinking, they got their robes after they laid them before Jesus. When they got them back, they were marked by the experience. For the rest of their lives, they would wear a robe stained with the hoof prints of the animal that carried the Messiah into Jerusalem. Do you think that they ever washed that thing? Do you th- I, they, that was the dirtiest robe. By the time that guy died, that was the stinkiest. They were never going to wash that off because it was a reminder of the moment when they laid their very best before Jesus and he marked it and gave it back to them. I think if more of us believed that this is what Jesus does with our generosity, we would be less afraid to give. I think people who are not generous have a hard time believing that when they give away, that they're not going to run out. That when they give, that God's not going to come through and replenish their supply. Which, it's such a shame because Jesus taught exactly the opposite. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said these words. Listen to this. Give and it will be given to you. Remember this text? A a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
You give generously, Jesus said, and it will be given back to you, overflowing generously. And isn't that just an echo of what we hear from Malachi when he, when he as the prophet of God, speaks God's word? Remember, he, the, the Lord through Malachi says, put me to the test. Remember that? It's the only time Malachi, that the Lord ever said that. Put me to the test. Bring my tithes, bring my offerings, bring the fullness of it to me. And you see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour blessing back out upon you. When we lay our very best before Jesus in worship, he touches it, he marks it, he blesses it, he multiplies it, and he gives it back to us. You cannot outgive God. Oh, that we could believe that. God is a generous God. Do you believe that? God is the most generous being in all of e- eternity. And John, God has created us to be generous people. We are at our best. We are aligned with our creative purpose when we are givers, when we are generous. Now, did God want us to give because he needs our money? I'll pause. No. Does, do we need to give because the church needs your money? Be careful here. <laughs> I'm always nervous about saying something like that, but actually, especially right now, because of the generosity of so many of you, that's not the case. We are in good shape. So then why do we need to give? Because it makes us better people. Because when we learn to be generous, when we strengthen those generosity muscles, we become more like the Jesus that we claim that we serve. Giving is a discipleship issue. It's not a fundraising issue. Giving makes us more like Christ and his generous father. I have never met, listen to this, I've never met a mature disciple who wasn't generous. I've never met a mature disciple in Christ who wasn't generous. So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but there's nothing in your checkbook to support that claim, you're actually kind of stingy secretly. I would dare say that this is one of those sore spiritual muscles that need some attention. There's some work that needs to be done here. In the end, every act, every area of our discipleship, including this one, is a work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You're not going to be more generous because of my clever words or because I make you feel guilty. You're going to become more generous if you surrender more and more of your life, your wallet, your heart to Jesus, to his spirit, to let him work in that. And so that's what we've been trying to do over these last few weeks, asking you, will you listen to the spirit? Will you ask the spirit to just speak to you and say, what is the next step forward in this part of your spiritual journey? And I wonder if you've been doing this. Last week we gave this card Would you pull it out if you didn't bring yours back? We gave it to you to reflect on and take home, but if you didn't, we've we've got millions of them for you. And if you could pull this out, this is just, this is a tool. It's a kind of a next step commitment opportunity. Now, if you're a visitor, just look at it with interest and then set it aside. We don't expect anything from you. You're our guest. But it, it is a chance for you to listen in on family business as we talk about stuff that matters to us. But if this is your church, if you've been taking this process seriously, if you sense that the Spirit has been stirring in you, then I invite you to fill this card out and use, and we're going to, later on, we're going to walk it forward as your Palm Sunday tribute to the Lord. It's your way of saying, Jesus, I want to lay my very best before you. Not the leftovers, not the dregs, 
the very best that I have to give. Listen, it could be that you're already a generous disciple. That might be an area that's not a problem for you. Thank God for all of you that are, because you make the ministry of this church possible. So for this, it would be just your reaffirmation that you want to be faithful and are seeking to be faithful in this area. For the others of you, it might be the first time after all these years, it might be the first time you give or the first time you take the scary step towards tithing, giving the Lord's tithe back to him. Or maybe it would be something as simple as signing up for automatic giving. You know what a difference that would make if just every member of the church was automatically giving uh, so that you don't forget. Or it could be that you are so buried in debt that even if you wanted to give, you wouldn't know how. And so maybe your commitment is, I'm going to sign up for Financial Peace University and get my, my financial house in order. Whatever it is, I'm not asking you to do what I'm telling you to do. I'm asking you to listen to the Spirit and do what He might be saying as our tribute to the Lord, as our worship to the Lord, our honoring of the Lord, okay? So I'm gonna, we're going to just take a, a, a minute to uh, pray over this and to um, fill this out, and then when we're done... I'm going to pray, and we'll have some music. And I invite you just, if you would, again, not, not visitors, but if you uh, are members and feel led by the Lord, come forward and just put these down in the basket as a, as a sign of worship to the Lord. And maybe as you put them in, maybe you'll pronounce a word of gratitude for the salvation of God. Maybe as you put them in, you say, Hosanna, Hosanna. There are baskets up there on both sides too. And, uh, and just a time of silence, if we could, as you reflect and pray and do whatever you sense the Lord wanting you to do, and then I'll pray for us and we will, uh, we will do this act of, of worship. God, thank you that you are such a generous God. Forgive us when we don't recognize the depth of your grace and love towards us. While we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. We weren't obedient. We weren't submissive. We were on the run doing all that we could to disappoint you. And you just would not let us go. And you gave to us your very best. God, teach us to be generous as you have created us to be. And especially for for those who find this particularly tough, Lord, would you pull them back from anger or irritation or blame? And instead, would you just do a work of healing in their heart? that they might discover what it means to be generous as Jesus is generous. And they would begin to live into the joy of generosity. Thank you, God, for those who are already generous. Thank you for what you do through the the givers in this church. And I just pray, Lord, that for the sake of our world, for the sake of our community, as well as for our church, that you would raise up another generation of people who learn and want and long to be generous disciples. Now, as we present these before you, Lord. We lay our best before you. May it represent our hearts laid before you this day. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Amen.